be lost. Okay. <laughs> but it is, it is something we have to guard against, not only uh, just in our own nature and the, the effects of sin in our nature and the divergence of that nature from the nature of God through the curse and through our rebellion, but even as believers, those of us who recognize through the gospel that we are nothing and we are without hope and helpless before God, and, and especially in that day that we will be held accountable. And this is really what Christ is stirring up foundationally in the Beatitudes. And as we looked at the, the structure of that in the first three Beatitudes, we saw the poor in spirit, which we covered last week. We saw, we'll look at what it means to mourn uh, and how through that recognition of our poverty before God and our uh, uh, mourning over our sin and our condition before God, it causes us to be meek and gentle. And so it's this foundation of humility, the state of the mind and thoughts towards ourself when we are confronted with the gospel, which is essentially the effects of the righteousness of God. God is righteous and we are not. And, and when His righteousness is revealed to us, it confronts us and, and leaves us hopeless and helpless and desperate for salvation because of the judgment that He rightfully brings to us because of His righteousness. So it's all in His righteousness that the gospel kind of dwells uh, that brings forth hope and salvation. And so we see that as, as foundational, but then that moves us to be drawn to God, to hunger and thirst, but then begins to manifest qualities in us, attributes that are reflective of God Himself, which we'll look at mercy, uh, we'll look at the, the pure in heart, that holiness that that is generated by the work of the gospel through Christ. And ultimately what I want to hopefully, if we can get to it, spend the most time on is looking at what it means to be a peacemaker. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so we looked initially that one way we need to approach the Beatitudes, it is a progressive work. As, as we are being humbled by the gospel, it is uh, transforming us uh, in the inner man. Uh, it, it, we're not just focused on behaviors, because remember Matthew 7 at the end of the, of the sermon, there were those who put all their hopes in their actions, in their behaviors. And they say what? Lord, Lord. I mean, look at me. Uh, we prophesied. We did many miracles. We uh, healed. We, whatever it is, that outward working of religion. And we could add in modern day things. You know, I've, I'm, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. I, I have a daily quiet time. I, um, I, I shared the gospel with someone. Um, I gave at the church. I volunteered at the food bank. Those are things that uh, in, in their essence are good things. But when we use them as a basis for our assurance in the day that we come before the Lord, and, and, and this is what we have to present, really? 
And Isaiah 64 says what? That our righteous deeds are what? They're filthy rags before God. So to think that we can produce activities that can be compared to the holiness of God is, in essence, our condemnation. I mean, even when we consider the... Remember, Shane taught through Luke several years ago and he approached that subject on the widow's might and we regard her as being a godly woman who sacrificed everything she had for the sake of the Lord. But the point of Christ uh, revealing that or exposing that was to condemn the Pharisees because they had placed a burden on her that that was the activity that was going to please God and, and bring her salvation. But she in herself was not uh, innocent in the matter because she was dependent upon that work as well. And so the Beatitudes set that, 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 that tone for us that our attitude is we, we can bring nothing before God. And we looked at that in the, in, the, in the Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit, that we are beggars, right, before God. And beggars are not those who, um, who earn a wage and struggle to make ends meet. Beggars are, are those who have no resource at all, have no wage, that everything that they receive through their begging is all they have. And therefore, a beggar, we, we talked about, always begs. And so there's desperate need. And this is how we approach God. So it affects us in our prayer life. Um, it affects us in how we uh, look at our life. Uh, believers should not complain. What do we have to complain about? Beggars can't be choosers, right? So with all that the Lord has offered us, we are in no position to claim anything, therefore, anything that we have, we, we have no business to complain about uh, because of what we have received from the Lord. Uh, so I want to continue walking through these individual attitudes. Like I said last week, we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and so I want to begin with blessed are those who mourn. Obviously, a natural progression from recognizing our poverty and what caused us to be bank, bankrupt spiritually was what? Sin. Our sin. And, and therefore, in light of what our sin has caused, we, we ought to mourn. We ought to, uh, to recognize and have a true sorrow. But it is important to understand what is true sorrow. Before God, so look at Second Corinthians seven. Some of you may be familiar with this passage and the situation, as Paul's dealing with the church here at Corinth. Um, uh, as Shane preached through First Corinthians, we learned a lot about the context here. That there were actually a total of four letters that were written, four correspondences that went between. Uh, or from Paul to the church at Corinth, and there were several written back to Paul. And you see this evidence in some of the statements Paul makes when he references uh, questions they've had or previous letters he's written. So 2 Corinthians is subsequently the fourth letter, which is important to to think about because of all that Paul went through to reconcile his relationship with the church at Corinth. 
because he was receiving accusations about his apostolic ministry, his motives in the ministry. He was addressing uh, glaring sin issues in their life and in the church. All this culminated uh, to a climax here in 2 Corinthians 7. And in a nutshell, what we see here is a, uh, a reconciliation where the church repented of their attitudes towards Paul, their attitudes towards the gospel, their attitudes towards the church. And, and what we can draw from this is we see a distinction between two types of sorrow. One is earthly or worldly sorrow or human sorrow, and the other is sorrow. And this is what we need to reflect when, we're, when we are being challenged to think that in your sorrow you will be happy. For blessed are those who mourn. So the, the, the paradox is one that has to be meditated on to, to even try to understand. How is it that we can be happy in our grief and in our sorrow? Well, it's a, when it's a sorrow that results from uh, true repentance and true mourning because we recognize our sin before God. So looking at um, 2 Corinthians uh, verse 8, Paul's referencing this letter he wrote uh, that, w- that some theologians or scholars would call the, the severe letter because he really had to, to bring harsh confrontation because of their sin. So he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, through, uh, though only for a while. I now rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what thing of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known uh, to the sight of God. And I have been comforted. So their sorrow, even though Paul regretted, writing them such a harsh letter that it actually caused them sorrow. He was not sorry because that sorrow produced uh, repentance that led to salvation. But how how do we distinguish that type of sorrow from worldly sorrow? How would you define worldly sorrow in light of that understanding? Worldly sorrow means that you're afraid that you now have to deal with the consequences. Okay. So you're not really sorry that you offended God or that you offended someone. What are you sorry about? That you got caught. Okay, that, that, that you're busted. And now you've got to deal with the aftermath of that. How many times do we see politicians deal with this? How many times do we see even 
uh, pastors and ministers deal with this, and you may deal with this in your own life. You may deal with it in your home when you with your children. I mean, our children are the masters of worldly sorrow, and and, and they will do whatever it takes to avoid the consequences because that's what they're trying to do. But we're in a situation now that we recognize our bankruptcy before a holy God that we now in our sorrow are crying out for mercy, crying out for uh, sympathy from God because we can't avoid the consequences. And this ought to cause us to mourn in such a way that it brings comfort. And so when we think about weeping and mourning, is it a necessary part of life? Is it something that, that some people deal with in life, or is it something we all deal with? I mean, it is a natural part of life. In fact, when we consider the fallenness of the world and the, the effects of our sin that cause God to curse this world, I, I really cannot help but think that the most merciful thing God did was curse this world. Because if Adam and Eve had not been pushed to the point of, of grieving over their own sin... They would have never desired and pursued the, the, the manner in which God wanted to reconcile himself back to men. And that being through uh, a Messiah, a Savior. And we're going to look at, at his life here in a little bit uh, in light of this. Uh, but mourning and weeping is a part of life. It's actually, I think, designed to draw sympathy from others. When we notice people that are downcast or even weeping or maybe even teary eyes, we're, we're drawn to that, right? We're, 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 we're interested to see, okay, is something wrong? And so th- there's a wisdom behind why we, we weep and why we mourn because it is meant to draw comfort from others because we're experiencing something that has grieved us, whether it's loneliness uh, just discouragement of life, um, maybe a lost loved one, uh, or maybe it's, it's we're dissatisfied with life. Maybe it's unfulfilled lust that we have. And so that sorrow and grief is meant to be redemptive. It's meant to, to, to draw us to sinful attitudes that we have that we need to repent of. And so we need to, to welcome the process of grieving. Uh, we need to, to, to not think that it's weak, first of all. That, that it, you're not a man if you, if you're, if you don't cry. I, I think that's a de- deceptive uh, uh, perspective of life. And, and, but we also have to be careful because we covet and seek sympathy, right? I mean, we want people to know our troubles. We want people to know why um, uh, my life is like it is. You know, we, we, we love it when people kind of acknowledge, wow, you've been through a lot, I know. Yeah, I, I really have. Um, and I want your sympathy. And so we have to be careful not to use uh, a, a mournful outlook a mournful countenance, a, a, 
um, a downcast look. If you've had a bad week and you, you come to church, you may see it as an opportunity to just kind of, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. You know, when, when you ask people how they're doing, I mean, I know that, that you're genuine, but it is kind of can be just surfacey interaction, and, and that's okay because, but man, do you really expect, yeah, hey, man, how you doing, Jeff? No, not really. I mean, and they just start unloading. Is that really, oh, I was headed that direction. Did you not notice I was going somewhere? But, okay, I, I'll, okay you, you obviously have something on your heart. And, and again, of course, this is the nature of the fellowship we want in the body of Christ. We ought to be concerned for one another. But examine your heart as one who's dealing with difficulty and struggle. What, what am I seeking from others? What should I be pursuing in others? And so first and foremost, we've got to recognize that we are to cast our anxieties on whom? Christ, because what? He says He cares. And so before I come anywhere in a public setting, I've got to cast my anxieties upon Him. You know, if I've got, if I've got legitimate reasons that I'm grieving, then I've got to go to the Lord. And I've got to to recognize my bankruptcy and, and mourn over my sin and, and see Him as a beggar and cast these things on Him so that then I might be able to what? The testimony that I can share is not that all my troubles are gone. It's that, look, I, we have a Savior who cares. And if you're, if you're struggling, let me tell you, I'm, I am going through some difficult, but let me tell you what Christ has done for me. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 says this. He says, um, starting in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's the God of all comfort. It means He's the only one we can seek true comfort from. Having someone sympathize with you and understand and pat you on the back and say, I'll pray for you, is, is a help. But it is not all comfort. God is the only one that can give all comfort. And He may provide that comfort through the body of Christ. Absolutely. I don't want to negate that. But if we're not going to the Lord first and we're wanting to cast all our cares upon Others, that's, that's potentially, seemingly, very self-centered, very selfish. Because then you've availed yourself to no one. But look what, look what he says. He's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. That's exactly what Paul's saying. If you will rely on the comfort of God, then you will be comfort for others, and God will use you. Uh, and, and so this is, again, reflective of the humility of our mind, one who's bankrupt before God, who mourns over his sin, but he can only find comfort in Christ and the gospel. And so be on guard with, with what we crave and what we desire from people. Uh, seek the Lord first. Um, a, a true believer will not find comfort out apart from God. 
And sometimes we actually, when we're uh, in the stress of a moment, uh, we're going to pursue comfort in things that we may find escape in or things that help us cope. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I have triggers, stresses, and there's a couple things I know that I resort to that are not necessarily wrong. Some of them are, but I make them sinful because they become idolatrous pursuits for me. One of them is I'll, I'll call my wife in a heartbeat. I mean, if I'm if I'm dealing with something or a little bit anxious or maybe sensing a dead time, and I mean, I just let me call Kay because I find comfort. In her, and of course, she's my spouse. She's my one flesh. Is that necessarily wrong? I mean, on on from the outside looking in, but yet, what's stirring in my heart is what needs to be examined and understood. Is this a time when when I am letting anxieties and stresses uh, overtake me that 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 I'm trying to seek refuge in comfort that I'm getting from my spouse? when I ought to be pursuing her comfort. Uh, it's not that she doesn't want to hear these things. She loves for me to to uh, relate to her in these matters, but yet I don't want to overwhelm her or me personally think that she can provide all comfort that I need. So my first move ought to be to hit my knees and, and cry out for help. Uh, my other trigger is, I mean, I, I'll pull through a fast food restaurant so quick. I mean, it's like if I've got a lot on my mind, that, that right there, I can escape for 15, 20 minutes in a Big Mac. <laughs> and I know you can't tell. Um, you know, I, I remove one of the three buns. You know, they have three. I take one of them out. And, and, and it's got lettuce. And, but, but I have triggers. I, I, I can veg out in front of the TV. You know, I... I, I, I Forgive me if I've ever criticized you of gaming till four in the morning. I've never stayed up that late watching TV. But if if I come in and there's not a lot of drama or stress going on, and I just see a pathway to the couch and maybe there's a game on, I mean, it's like a zombie. I don't even know. We'll be watching a show and Kay might say, what did they just say? And I'm like, I I don't even know. I I wasn't even listening. It's just a... It's a way to escape. It's a way to remove the, the burdens and the thoughts going on on a daily basis. We have to guard against that um, because even though it may not necessarily be sinful activities, but we can also find comfort in sin. If you, if you have involved your life in trying to counsel someone that's gripped in a life-dominating sin, whether it be substance abuse or uh, immor- immoral uh, actions and pornography, you basically can help them through those struggles and issues if you help them understand that it's simply idolatry. They're looking to escape life through those activities, and it's getting them deeper into a pit of their depravity. And so that's a way we always want to address our own sins and also help others pursue. And it's being able to to find the Lord as their comfort in the struggles of life, because we can't promise that struggles will be removed. We can't promise that life gets easier. And that's the unfortunate teaching that's out there in a lot of churches, that if you come to Christ, your life will be easier and you will prosper. 
And there's never a promise in that matter except in the spiritual realm uh, and how we prosper. Um, But what ultimately um, brings us comfort from our sin? What's that? Go ahead, Matt. What difference does that make? What does a relationship with Jesus Christ provide for us? Okay, so saved from our sin, how? Okay, we know that there's beyond this, there is a transition out of this world, this fallenness, but how has he provided it? Okay, and how did he make a way for reconciliation? Through the cross, what was provided through the cross? Payment for our sins, which gave us what? Who said it? Forgiveness. Forgiveness from our sins. Everything you said speaks to the forgiveness I've said. You, nobody gave a wrong answer. But to me, that is the key uh, work that has been accomplished on the cross is that what caused us to be in this realm of, of uh, poverty and bankruptcy and condemnation and judgment was the, the sin that indwells us, and we have to be forgiven of that. We have to be redeemed from that, and that is the work that's been accomplished. The redemption of our lives through the forgiveness of our sins. And you see that in, in Romans 3, and we won't turn there, but, but Shane preached through it, of course, months ago, but um, it centers on, we, we only had two... Options. We either obeyed the law perfectly, which when confronted with the law, we know can't happen, or God simply just overlook our sins. You know, at times, uh, as parents, children obey our laws in the home, right? And we got to deal with it with, with wisdom and, and righteously with our kids for their good. But sometimes you're like, I, mean, I just don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. And, and we have let them slide. But can God let us slide? That's, that's the reality we have to face. God is holy and perfect. He can't overlook. We're not perfect and He can't overlook sin because He is perfect. So what, what's the hope? And that's what it points to the redemption of our lives through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. God has forgiven us of our sins and therefore removed the effects of our sin, the condemnation, the judgment. And, and that, that is through the work of Christ. And our only hope and assurance is in Christ. And this is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the point of laying the foundation of the Beatitudes we're, we're looking at here in Matthew 5. So some things to consider uh, in this. I mean, look at, we can't not consider mourning and not look at James chapter 4. Uh, if any of you are familiar with, with this text in the book of James... James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Have you got that, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Can you read that for us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Okay. Is this, is this the message people want to hear <laughs> when they consider what the what Christianity ought to be about and what the church should be about and and um, my wife counseled a, a lady recently from another church in Atlanta and and uh, this was her beef why why are, and she's a professing believer and she's in what we might consider you know, a like-minded church, but she's like, why, why do we have to be so negative as Christians? It, everybody's talking about sin and, and how we ought to be sorry and, and all this stuff. And I, I just don't think that that's what people want to hear. Of course they don't. But this is what brings blessedness because it leaves us at the point where, where now God can redeem us because we're, we're, we're being removed you know, Jesus says, he who loses his life will be saved, but he who saves his life will be lost. So when we fight against this and we want to save our life, we want to be happy with what the world provides in its thinking and in its material uh, provision, we're going to lose our life. But it's when we lose our life in this reality that we need to weep and mourn. So first and foremost, things to consider personally uh, by way of implication of this truth, is are you sensitive to sin in your own life? Do you have a sensitive conscience? Do you ignore uh, times when you know you have violated your conscience or, and done something wrong? Uh, are you quick to reconcile those things with the Lord and, and, and deal with them in your own life? And then secondly, are you sensitive to sin of, uh, in the lives of others around you? Okay, not meaning that we're constantly judging and we're constantly calling people out, but do we have a sensitive spirit in nature towards those who are gripped in sin? Or do we just take a, a, a bystander's approach and say, well, that's their problem. I got my own problems. So in the body of Christ, we have to always personally be reflecting upon the purity in our lives and always desiring to minister to others who are struggling with sin and who ought to be responding in the same way. Thirdly, let's look at the meek. Um, God, I'm going to make it. I'm going to see if you all let me come next week. you all have a problem with that? Um, blessed are the meek. Uh, how would you define meekness? It's taking that same humility out of verse 3 and turning it on the horizontal plane. That you don't deserve anything from God and you don't deserve anything from anybody else. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of the natural effects of humility and now bringing it to a relational level uh, in our life. So it's, it's, it's beginning, we're beginning to see this inner working now being reflected out. And one is through meekness, or another translation might be gentleness. Um, y'all probably heard it said over the years, I've always heard meekness is, it's not weakness, right? It's what? 
You ever heard that phrase? Power under control. And I think it's, it's not comprehensive in, in what we need to understand of it, but a very good description. So who are the meek and what are the meek like? I think that's the best way I've learned to understand what meekness is, is when I have seen it demonstrated in godly men. So who are they and what are they like? Meek men. Do you know any? You may not realize you know many until we clarify what it means, but did you say wise, Laura? No, I said quiet. Quiet, okay. Not argumentative. Okay, good. Uh, So quiet, argumentative, not argumentative. I'm opposite both those, loud and very uh, defensive. Um, Selfless. Selfless. They, they really don't consider themselves, which is just a reflection of the humility in their heart. What else? Servanthood. Servanthood. they <clears throat> quick. And, and why is it that they're um, quick to serve or ready to serve? Okay. Um, they definitely know it's a way to honor Christ, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. But what... What moves us to serve people and help people? Okay. The response of the mercy they received. Go ahead, Mark. I'll get you, Damon. Okay. Considering others. Okay. Right, it doesn't always have to be in what they say, but what they do. Uh, They're definitely aware. There's a self-awareness of their own sin and and the awareness of the needs around them. And so they're operating from that, that, the, the, the basis of their humility that then is, is extended to meet the needs of others. So there, some other things I have, they're teachable. They're, they're never uh, quick to defend themselves. They're patient, slow to anger, but they hate sin. Um, and they endure suffering with tolerance. Uh, even unfair suffering, unfair treatment. Um, one way I like to, to describe it is it is one who is not provocative. Meaning that they are not easily provoked and they do not provoke. Okay, so it's just, I'm a big sports fan. I love athletes who are not about themselves. You know what I mean? You know, you see uh, the athletes today and their self-centeredness. They're all about drawing attention to themselves, even when they're trying to like, I don't know their heart, and I'm not judging them, but when they're trying to deflect that glory up, you know, and they, they give us that, and we're quick to say, oh, man, he's a believer. Wish he could come to our church. Maybe he'd give us some of that multi-million dollar contract. Um, again, I don't question those guys, but I, when people draw attention, the meek men do not like attention. They, they're not doing things for the attention of others, and so they're not provoking people to... to 
to notice them. They're not provoking them to anger in the way that they're treating them. Uh, they're not causing people to be defensive. They're not causing people to stumble in their sin. And no matter what you do to them, they're not going to be provoked. No matter what you say what, you know, uh, or what you do. And so I recognize those type of athletes. Uh, one I love, Roger Federer. You watch him play, you don't know if he's winning or losing. You don't know if he's hit a good shot or bad shot. There are moments he might pump his fist, but he's just steady. And I love to see men like that. And I could call out a few that I know in this church. And I'm not saying those of you I haven't noticed aren't meek. But they're just men that set themselves apart, that are just the same every, every time you see them. They're full of joy and they want to bless you. And they do uh, through this, this attitude. So that's, that's a good way that I think of it, that they're consistent in their countenance, uh, that you never know if they're having a good day or a bad day. They just are, are uh, always filled with hope and joy. Uh, and, and if you asked them, if you pulled them aside and you got them to open up, you might realize they're, they're really going through some challenges because most of us do. But because of their their unfailing trust in Christ, because they have cast their cares upon Him, and so it produces this meekness, this dependability. You can always depend on these men. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter four, and you kind of see this meekness personified in how we relate to one another in the church. Starting in verse 29, it says, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This, this verse 31 manifestation of life personified is one of, of reaction, provocation. We're provoked to these things, to bitterness and wrath and anger, and we become malicious. This is, this is uh, the opposite of meekness, but the, the one who's meek is kind, is tender-hearted, and forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So it's, I heard it said um, recently, it made me think of this, that a, a believer is to be soft, uh, have a soft heart and and tough skin. You know, we're to be tender in our nature, but we need to be tough-skinned. We can take anything. There's nothing you can say about me. There's no. There's not a way that you can treat me uh, that is unjust and unfair that is going to provoke me. Because what has been preserved in my life through the redemptive work and the forgiveness of sins is sealed for the redemption, as he says there. That when we react in these ways, when we are provoked to anger and bitterness and, and strife 
especially in the body of Christ, we grieve the Holy Spirit because we are rejecting the notion that we've been sealed for redemption. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit and, and be meek. Be, uh, do not give in to sinful anger. Uh, okay, let's, let's quickly move on. Uh, we can try to go to 10.15. But this kind of, uh, the, the brokenness, these first three Beatitudes, the brokenness of spirit, the mourning, the meek, uh, basically what drives us to this sense of need for Christ and to hunger and thirst. And that's what it, it says, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And... Uh, that we are to pursue the righteousness of God in light of, of, of His redemption. And so these, these beatitudes that are dealing with the inner attitude are humility before God, uh, then produce the subsequent beatitudes uh, like mercy, purity, and peacemaking. And, and the more outworking uh, response to the in-working uh, and the practice. And we see this a lot of times presented in Paul's writings where Paul lays the foundation of doctrine which forms the attitudes of our heart through our beliefs. Uh, like in Ephesians uh, 4, uh, he basically says, Therefore, considering these doctrinal truths... Now, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, Romans 12, 1 uh, says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, to what? Present yourselves a living sacrifice. Being transformed. Not being conformed to the world any longer. Not considering yourself more highly than you ought. So, we, we've seen now the foundation laid, just like in that. The, the realities of the gospel have humbled us to now begin this outworking manifestation of these truths. And it first begins with mercy. And I am personally of the opinion, um, through my study of the scriptures and who God is, in light of the affecting work of the gospel through His righteousness, in unredeemed man, in, the, in fallen men, that of all of God's perfections that we have studied, all of His attributes, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Pink's book, The Attributes of God. I encourage you to read it devotionally, apart from your time in the Word. Um, amazing truths that will, will expand the mind in our view of God, but of all the attributes that we can wonder at, all His perfections, the one attribute that I believe brings most benefit to us, that, that, that brings us most blessing, is His mercy. It is through His mercy, which is defined basically as compassion. Now we can, we can look at those around us and see those in need, and we can be compassion or have compassion for them. But what good does our compassion do for them? Yeah, if, if we 
have interaction with him, but I can observe somebody and think, man, I just feel sorry for him. I really pity his situation. And go on to, to my troubles in life. My compassion has done nothing for him. But it's mercy, it's, which is compassion that moves us to action. It's, it's, it's because I can feel sorry for people, but if I don't have mercy, I, I am of no good to anybody. And without God's mercy, he could look upon this, the state of his creation, and he was grieved. But if he didn't have mercy, he would have been perfectly righteous to continue and leave us to, to our uh, demise. But his mercy moved him then to provide a way of escape, to offer salvation by His means, by His provision, by His wisdom, by His power. Not anything in us, but without His mercy, we are nothing. And so I I see this as um, a way in which He met our greatest need. And that, again, as we said, was the forgiveness of our sins. Um, uh, We... He even defi- in Romans 12, as we said, he defines the gospel, the mercies of God. The mercies of God is how, how Paul defined the previous 11 chapters. This is, I told you, a, the most wonderful story that you could ever hear, and I sum it up by calling it the mercies of God. Period. Uh, look at Psalm 103. This is, of course, a psalm of David, and I love it. He begins it with this, this personal, internal struggle to, to praise the Lord. I see this as an internal battle that he's having in which he turns to himself and rebukes himself. And you know this because we sing this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. So he's rebuking his soul because he is uh, neglecting to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord. And it's frustrating him because we, we just struggle in that in life. We are distracted. We forget the good, goodness of the Lord. And we need to always like this, just come on, soul, bless the Lord and, 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 and worship him, praise him, thank him in his holy name. And forget, look at verse 2, and forget none of his benefits. Okay, what are those benefits? If you now go through and say, okay, what benefits is he talking about? What, what has the Lord done for us? And the, the majority of the emphasis in the rest of the psalm is the mercy of God. He says, uh, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all whom are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts, the sons of Israel. Uh, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Uh, And some other passages you recognize... um,
let's see, I'm trying to find one passage in particular. Uh, here we go. Uh, verse 11, I'm sorry, I jumped right over it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And so it's focused on the forgiveness of sins brought about by His mercy. So consequently, if that is His greatest attribute or His attribute that brings us the greatest joy in our life, we then have to understand that the greatest way in which we can honor the Lord with our life is to what? What's that? Okay, fear Him. We show mercy to others. Okay, we always have heard and known that uh, imitation is the greatest flattery. Well, this is what the Lord is uh, conforming us to be in our Christ-likeness, is to reflect His mercy to the Lord. Uh that we are to be merciful. And that begins, first of all, with compassion. You know, do we care about the needs of others? Are we so consumed with our own needs and our own cares that we're not sensitive or concerned at all with the needs of others? And this is what uh, Christ is teaching, that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he says several times in, in the Gospels that uh, unless you forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And it's not a conditional uh, reality where, where we are earning God's forgiveness through our forgiveness. The reality is if you are unwilling to forgive others, then you have not truly experienced forgiveness and that is reflective in the fact that you recognize your poverty before God, your uh, mourning over your sin, and the salvation that God provides. And so if, if you ha- struggle with forgiveness of others who have offended you, if you struggle with unforgiveness uh, of, of uh, the test and even towards God when you feel like He has caused things in your life, then you more than likely have not understood the forgiveness of God and therefore might be deceived as these men were in Matthew 7 who said, Lord, Lord, we did all these things and it's declared that you never knew Christ. And so we must learn... uh, what the mercy of God is in our life, what it provides, and, and is it producing mercy in our own life? Are we being merciful? So how do we express mercy? Of course, pity and understanding towards those around us. Uh, and that comes with a, an attitude of Ephesians too, right? Um, look at Ephesians 2 real quick. Some of you know this by heart. That Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is who we once were if we are believers now. If we're not believers, this is who we are. We walk according to this world as sons of disobedience, dead in our trespasses and sins. But if we've been redeemed, this is what we have been redeemed from. And if we recognize the desperation of who we were and to now what we've received through the gospel, we are are moved with gratitude and with humility because we look at verse 4. Even though this is who we were, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the mercy of God worked out in our lives so that we may now understand. So this is all working towards this peacemaker mindset. I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to deal with what it means to be a peacemaker. And we cannot be a peacemaker unless this is the attitude that we uh, embrace and accept. That if we cannot remember what God has saved us from, then we are unable to have pity for those around us who are walking in darkness, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Our reaction is we now take on this righteousness and we're in a position to judge others. And we're in a position to say that I'm better than others. And they're experiencing what they are because of their uh, sin. And I have nothing to do with that. But if we recognize this is what we've been saved from, that, that people around us are simply living according to their nature, and that this is who we once were, then we are moved to pity and an understanding to know that, that they have a need. And what they need is mercy. And they need to know the mercy of God. And so we pity and we have understanding. And then it causes us in, in, in an attitude of meekness to even deal with people in their sin and their struggles. And we pray for them and we pursue them with the truth of the gospel. Um, well, I'm going to take liberty to end there. Uh, not having completed the study because we don't have time, but I'm going to see when the opportunity may be uh, with Joel to come back, if y'all don't mind. Um, uh, so let's take a vote. Who wants me to come back and teach? The- no, I'm kidding. No, I'm not asking. Look at me. I'm asking for, for affirmation. I'm not. I don't want. I, y'all may be sitting here. Man, we can't wait for Joel to get back. Because he's been out a few weeks. And he is working diligently and hard on bringing you guys the Song of Solomon. Did he share that with y'all? Okay. So I think that's going to be an excellent study. Um, But I may see if he's able to to take advantage of another week to prepare. Uh, I think he actually is going to do something next week uh, not in the Song of Solomon, so maybe he won't mind because, again, I really i am trying to build up to this idea of what it means to be a peacemaker in this world and in this life. And how this is what we are being transformed into, or peacemakers. And, and therefore, we will be sons of God.
and, and be uh, declared sons of God. Uh, so we'll, if I come back, we'll deal with the purity of heart and then look at a study in, uh, of, uh, of Christ as a peacemaker and who we are as peacemakers. So any thoughts, comments, questions? I appreciate your feedback and interaction. Um, and just ask that you continue to pray for uh, Martin Indino. Do you know when he's coming back, Betty Ann? Um, have you heard any updates on how things have go- gone? Um, I have not. Okay. But actually today was actually the funeral for his father. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So a good time to remember him and, and pray for him. Uh, I know it's, it's had to be very challenging for him. Uh, like I said, I think there's 12 siblings. He's not the oldest. But yet he is uh, kind of the most revered, therefore bears a lot of responsibility with these family issues. And so I know that he's got a lot on him, not, not to mention the grief of losing his father and then having to come back to his studies um, and continued preparation for his ministry there. Um, and then pray for our, our continually pray for uh, God's provision for our building uh, as... Uh, today kind of wraps up our last week of the offering, but as you know, there's always opportunity to give, but we're kind of giving special attention to this month for that, and just pray that the Lord would be honored with our gifts. Uh, we receive to give, right? We teach this in our membership class and our attitude about giving. Uh, we as leaders and, and the elders of the church do not want to uh, unwittingly or even purposely lead you to give under compulsion or we don't want you to give resentfully for the Lord loves a cheerful giver and we want you to give in a manner that pleases the Lord. And so our heart is to shepherd you through that, not to burden you with that. Uh, But yet, uh, as we say, money comes in pretty handy down here. Uh, If y'all are fans of It's a Wonderful Life, that's what George Bailey says to Clarence the Angel. And I think it's a very telling. But the reality is, we, we need money. You need money. you, you got to provide for your family. Uh, but the First Chronicles 29, David's prayer to, to the Lord in response to the offering that Israel gave for the temple was, Lord, who are we that you should bless us so that we could return thanks to you in, in this offering? And we want that to be your attitudes, that, Lord, why are we blessed so that we can give back to you? We don't deserve this. And so we thank God for uh, the, the blessings he's given this church through the generosity of his people. So continue to pray for that, and, and uh, not only in how you would, would participate, but just in the needs overall. Uh, we're, we're, we could be here for... Five years, and I'd be happy with it, but I don't know how long we can keep up the set-up, tear-down task. Pray for strength for the workers. Consider uh, helping if you're not work- currently working. Don't assume that, that you're not needed. Uh, assume that you are needed, and, and make yourself available if you can, if you have the opportunity. Uh, let me know. Let Justin know over here, um, but there's always needs, but... We are positioned as a church financially to 
to set up tent here as long as we need to. We own a very valuable piece of property in downtown Woodstock. You know how property values are raising, so we uh, have many options, but we desire to facilitate this ministry in a place that, that will serve the church but serve the community as well. We're not about the building, the look of the building, the, the, the price of the building. It's simply a desire to facilitate ministry that we could not accommodate at our previous place and obviously have limitations here. But we're thankful to where we are. We have a place to meet. We have a friendship with the school here, and we, we just couldn't be more thankful for where we are. And I can't thank those who do serve faithfully enough. Um, so, again, let me close this in prayer.